Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for deciding to spend some time with us here again today. If you'd like to keep up with everything that's going on with Education on Fire and get a free download of the top 10 resources and insights shared by my over 200 guests now on the show, please go to educationonfire.com, put in your details and we'll send that to you direct to your inbox. And today I'm chatting to Al Kingsley and he's the CEO and Group Managing Director of NetSupport and they're a cloud-based classroom management and teaching platform which was developed with a valuable input from teachers. He's also chair of a multi-academy trust, an author, a speaker and a member of Forbes Technology Council. Now it's really interesting how the last 18 months has shaped our ideas of what EdTech is, how it works across different areas, both in schools, at home, and this new idea of blended learning. But I think one of the strong things that comes across is the fact that, like many things, we're not reinventing the wheel here. And over the last 30 years, Al's got a really good idea of that history and that insight of what's gone on both in terms of EdTech, but how that evolution has worked in terms of getting the best thing you can out of your digital world within your school. And just before this really insightful conversation with Al, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. Thank you to the National Association for Primary Education for their long-term support of the Education on Fire podcast. To get a free e-copy of their professional journal, Primary First, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash journal. That's nape.org.uk forward slash journal. Hi Al, thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. One of the things which I really know has been important over this last year is the technology that we've been using through our remote learning. And I'm pretty sure that going forward, we're going to have some kind of blended way of learning, not just in the classroom, not just at home. And I think how we bring all those things together are going to be incredibly important. And I think you're going to be the ideal person to actually have a really good overview of of how that's going to work. So thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. It's lovely to be here. I think we've all been through the blender over the last year. So a very apt topic. Yes, absolutely. So let's start with a little bit about, you know, what what do you provide? What's your sort of positioning with all of this related to EdTech and and your experience involved in it? Well, I've had the the luxury, I suppose, if you want to call it that, of best part of 30 years developing technology to support um, support schools and multi-academy trusts Um, and within that I suppose like everything it's been a bit of an evolution so as a business we focus on kind of the rings of looking after the the overall IT infrastructure let's be honest the number one frustration for staff is tech that doesn't work and you can't trust it and have confidence in it being available when you need it and alongside that if we're using it we want to make sure we keep our kids safe so the safeguarding tools the filtering to make sure that um, our children are accessing the right and appropriate content uh, and then the other strand is about the how do we interact? Well, we've got the eyes and ears, the, the key tools in the classroom, but it's also uh, appropriate to look at things like instructional technology. So the ability for teachers to monitor what's happening on kids' screens, shepherd and nurture them, share and hand out resources, uh, and thinking of our, our blended discussion uh, and what's happened over the last year is, you know, that context of the physical classroom has been somewhat stretched and uh, redefined over the last year. And so really removing those boundaries and recognising that actually instructional technology can happen in in many ways whether the the teachers remote the children are remote they're all in the classroom or sometimes maybe a combination therein so providing the tools really that you only need to be familiar with one 
at a technology that allows you to interact with your students uh, no matter where they are. And I think that's really key. I definitely agree with that. And and something which has happened to me since we've sort of got a bit more face to face is um I made the mistake of assuming that people were still using the tools we were using when we were doing it online. So I was emailing, I was sending documents through and they said, Oh no, I haven't looked at that since we've been back in school <laughs> and um and, and I think like you say, sort of having this idea of, you know, what is it that we're gonna be using and how are we gonna be using it from now on in is gonna be a really important idea. I think, I think you're spot on there, but I think there's also that context, which is one of the biggest challenges that both students, but also fundamentally staff face is the rapid adoption of lots of different technology and building confidence. And the first thing we think of when we think about a blended model is, are we really expecting people to flip-flop between multiple tools, one for in the classroom, one for remote, when actually the smart money says, actually, if we learn the benefits and what's worked well, there are some tools that work irrespective of locale. And that has huge implications. It reduces the CPD and training, reduces the IT support team's work. And actually, students get familiarity with, with one pathway to engaging with their teacher. So whilst you can't do everything with one particular app, I think looking in, you know, ironically, that narrative has been about less is more. It's better to use a few tools well and have impact than to try and have a massive toolbox that you try and dip into but you don't have the same levels of confidence with. I, I completely agree. And and especially for those of us who work across multiple schools or multiple situations, that was certainly a, a real feature for me when we were we were remote because it was, you know, whether it was Teams or whether it was Google or Zoom or, or whatever it happened to be, it was like a different setup for each one and they've all got their little quirks. And um and I think the admin related to that certainly for me was quite a lot in terms of calendar organization and sending details out and that kind of thing. So I think you're right, that kind of just knowing where you are and, and set up and it's certainly something I've done much more since I've sort of been in a bit more control of what I'm doing um, since we sort of got back face to face. So so tell us from what you've learned from that in terms of how that works with the technology which you're working with and, and how that's helping people. Well, I guess there's a number of strands. I mean, the, the most important thing we've, we've learned is when we're, when we're investing in new technology, there's an easy assumption about um, we've got a finite budget, let's go buy something that we think meets our needs. Uh, and often we forget about the bigger picture, which is if we're investing in technology, we've also got to think about you know the infrastructure that we're putting it onto and making sure that that's suitable and sufficient to flex and adapt. And we also need to consider what we've budgeted in terms of CPD and resource to actually make sure that staff build confidence, not just for a, a quick hours inset at the start of the academic year, but an ongoing development of how we do that. So, so often, you know, it's something that I talk quite regularly about is about thinking about that broader digital strategy. And that's a scary word because the natural persuasion is we've got so many things on the plate at the moment, we can't possibly be embedding in a digital strategy. And you kind of have to wind back and say, well, actually, many of the schools that had a strategy, and it's a grand title, but in essence, it's just a sense of what you want to leverage out of tech and, and how where your priorities are of the things that you want to improve or, or, or have impact on. Uh, those schools performed better because they were able to flex much, much more quickly. Uh, and I also think we've already proven to ourselves that actually in the space of a few weeks, schools had a massive ramp up on the use of technology. The question was which bits work well and which bits didn't. Um, so I often kind of focus on the fact that by, by nature, educators are very reflective. It's a really good trait when it comes to saying, we know that over the years, many of us through lack of confidence haven't always been as receptive to looking at what tech is out there that might have a positive impact. And that might be in terms of 
outcomes for young people, but it could be about well-being, communication, parental engagement, saving teachers time. And now more than ever, that's a really useful strand to be mindful of. Uh, and um, I don't want to sound like Donald Rumsfeld, but it's not the things that you know about that you need to learn. It's the, it's the things you don't know about that you need to learn. And so it's that mindset of saying, actually, there are other tools out there that might actually be the, you know, not quite the panacea to everything, but would give us a really good saving. So I'm very much, you know, trying to encourage that teachers use things like, you know, whether it's their PLN or whether it's their, their, their local schools within, within their region, about that kind of peer reference of what the tools you're using, what's worked well, identify what's worked well. And without a doubt, there have been some things that we can really hang a hat on that have been quite effective during the COVID period. And then say, do we want to lose those skills and lose that impact and just revert back to the way it always was? Or are we receptive and actually taking some of those things and adapt? You know, and I could throw out something simple like uh, remote virtual parents evenings. And I think most staff would say, actually, you know what, Al, that's, that's worked quite well for us. It's been good time management. It's been less stressful. Um, some of our harder to reach families have actually engaged where they wouldn't normally turn up because they don't want the conversation with classmates, parents sat behind them in the room and all the other factors. But, you know, it can go beyond that. You know, we, we can turn around and have a conversation along the lines of something that says, you know, well, what, what do we do in the, in the Easter term when we do revision classes? I'm thinking secondary at, the, at that point as, a, as, a, as an example. Do we bring all the kids into school? Do we bring them all in and, and, and do revision classes? Or do we do them online and record them so that those that don't engage can access them subsequently? You know, and the same applies at every level. We've, we, we've identified certain tools that have worked really well. And we've identified other tools that perhaps on reflection, we were hasty to actually take on board and, and they haven't had the impact we wanted. So that reflective nature of looking what works well, you know, in the same way as vendors. And I think it's really important because I'm certainly a strong advocate of co-production. And so I think that the best tools are ones that you bring the technical expertise of vendors along with the educators to really identify the need and the impact uh, and co-produce those tools. And so vendors like ourselves, we've had to go away and say, you know what, we need to recognize that while this technology we've had and we've been selling for the last 20 years has been spot on, roughly, maybe, for feedback, we need to adapt and change. We need to be big enough to say, actually, based on the new landscape, the new needs, even if it's thinking about that insurance policy of what if we have another wave or we have more bubbles break out in the autumn again, um, let's adapt ourselves and recognise that that feedback is something that you can't ignore. So I think we've all had to be quite reflective in that regard. I was watching a webinar as part of independent thinking and they were talking about sort of creative curriculum and, and all of that kind of thing. But one of the things that came up during that particular video was the fact that people were starting to say that, you know, well-being needs to be at the heart of everything, you know, because children need the support and because because of everything we've been through. But one of the things that was then mentioned was, but why was that not part of the, 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 the main part of your curriculum anyway? You know, that, that wasn't something new. It wasn't something that children suddenly needed. It was something which they've always needed. It just happened to be that it changed its focus slightly. And, and I, think, I, think, I think ed tech is the same sort of thing. You know, technology has been around for a long time. The versions have been around for a long time. Children have been using technology for a long time. It's just that all of a sudden we hit that kind of, now we, make, we need to make sure it looks a certain way or that we can use it in a different way. But I think those schools that had sort of seen that needing it to be part of what it was earlier on, I guess, were the ones that kind of coped easier during that time. I think you, you, you really hit an important point there. You know, I mean, well-being now, of course, is, is, is right up there as our, as our primary priority. But sometimes events that happen that are, you know, 
well outside of the norm become an amplifier to certain things that have always been there they've always been part of your your bigger picture but they really it really does bring them to the fore uh, and often it's when you're forced to respond to something that you identify that actually it's not necessarily um, as hard to bring to the fore as you might have thought before when you were juggling lots of other priorities. Um, so it absolutely has been that kind of catalyst for discussion around edtech. And of course, ironically, we talk about the pressure that learning new tools might create. There's also the converse side, which is some of the tools that schools have become begun to embed in, within their schools have genuinely had an impact on well-being. There's plenty of staff that would talk about the fact that pre-COVID, they'd come in in the morning into their classroom in quite a siloed way and be full on throughout the day. And, and they've actually found that with some of the remote working and using Teams and back channels, they've had greater collaboration and communication with their peers, ironically, albeit in a digital sense, or the accessibility of meetings have improved because without the need to physically head to a different building or in the room, they're all just connecting in from their laptops. It, it can be a facilitator and it's never a black and white, but there are positives that I think we can embrace from that. Yeah, I think that's really true, and and I think the what you said there about the the learning of new tools is 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 really important, isn't it? Because people will be fearful of that. But I think there there is that sense of now we've been through this last year. You know, if we're going to set ourselves up for the future and be future proof as much as we can be from that, now's the time to do it. And also not just thinking about maybe what the cost is in terms of monetary cost or or time and effort. But the fact is, is that that's ongoing, you know, that there's ongoing costs in lots of those different ways. And actually really thinking about it now and embedding it now is going to certainly save you a lot of finance and I guess aggro later on down the line. Yeah, in fact, ironically, when I talk about digital strategy with schools, I, I often use the example that, you know, perhaps going back a few years ago, there was a kind of a conversation that happened in many schools where it was a case of we've got X left in the budget. What what are you, what do you desperately need? What do you want to buy? And I kind of hold that up as, a, as an exemplar of what not to do. So I would say with a digital strategy, it should be about getting all the stakeholders around the table, looking at your school development plan, identifying the areas that you want to develop, setting out your objectives of where you want to go over the next few years. And then the finance really dictates the speed of that journey. It shouldn't shape the decisions about what that journey is because that's about teaching and learning and well-being and supporting our SEND students and so on and so on. So the finance really is the facilitator and the rate of change. And, and ironically, actually, often when you start looking at the tech that you've got within your school, and I'm sure many schools will have felt the same um, March, April last year, actually one of the first things you reflect on is about how well utilised the tech was before. You know, how, how many of the devices were actually being used throughout most of the, of the school days? Many would be in carts and pulled out once a week or twice a week. Maybe, you know, at different age groups at secondary, it's about putting different devices in the right places, moving them about. You know, and certainly I think from that point of view, looking at the ways to get more out of your ed tech shouldn't be a consideration of how much more do we spend. It starts with how well are we using what we've got and how do we know we're using it well? And how does that conversation often come up if you if you do uh, CPD days or, or you go in and you're chatting to schools about that? Is that a kind of a real sort of light bulb moment? Um, and, and then how do you sort of shift that into a real sort of practical change in strategy? I do do quite a lot of, of inset days and speak at events. And I think I think the first thing is when people say ed tech, or frankly, just the word technology when it comes to IT and computers, there's either a mindset of this will be exciting or there's the natural kind of fear factor of, oh, that's not my thing, or goodness, more change, or change for change's sake. And people can often remember the one example where 
tech projects were introduced and failed spectacularly for one reason or another. So we kind of start by acknowledging that actually nobody's wrong with an opinion, whether they're really positive or negative about it. But the largest part of a digital strategy is not about the tech. It's actually about identifying the areas that you want to develop, the opportunities you want to create, how it might attract different learners to engage in different ways, where your pressures are, whether it is time, staff, uh, you know, well-being, um, whether it is about we want to improve our communications out to families and the community and broader. And once you've kind of identified what it is you want to achieve, then it becomes a little bit of a light bulb moment because then it's saying, well, I didn't know these tools existed. Of course, there's a journey because once you know there are tools out there, the big question is always, but who believes the the, the vendor's brochure. You know, every solution promises that if you install this software, a week from now, all your children will jump up three grades. And we all know that's not really the case. And I'm exaggerating for effect. So, but, so that's the bit where we, there's absolutely been a narrative that's moved on over the last year about making sure we look at research-informed solutions, whether we whether it's about peer research, getting references from other schools that are already using the technology, whether curriculum-based app, looking at the evidence that their pedagogy aligned, whether they can actually see that it's not just smoke and mirrors, but there's some real impact in that. And again, that ties back to my, my um, kind of starting point about less is more. It's much better to put one or two new solutions to meet your immediate priorities in place, get them well embedded, see the evidence of them having an impact. And that builds, most importantly of all, confidence. And that confidence then inspires you to say, now let's do step two, let's take it a step further. And again, by co-producing it with all of your stakeholders in the school involved, you tend to bring people along on a journey rather than drag them kicking and screaming. You know, and it's not, it's not a simple thing, but again, that, that CPD word is the one that I think most people just forget about. And it's either they don't put enough CPD to give staff confidence, or frankly, just flip it away from the teachers. As soon as we install a new solution, we automatically assume that the IT team will be experts on supporting you with it. Well, are they supposed to know every product on the planet and all the details and nuances of it? So if they're involved at the beginning of the conversation, you know, prior to that, we've bought it, now install it and get it going, making sure they've got confidence in it. Again, it's that sense of, you know, technology often fails, not because of the technology, but because of the adoption process and the training and the implementation. And it's about making sure that you give yourself a fighting chance for success. Yeah, I love that whole idea of teams and, and people kind of working together in that collaboration idea, because then you're you're planning and you've got those foundations of where you want everything in your school to move forward. Because of course, actually having a system that really works just is across the entire curriculum and the entire learning of everyone's who's involved, which is which is the most important thing. And and I think the thing that really struck me is the fact that as a philosophy and a way of thinking and a way of implementing things this works in almost every subject you want to do you know if you want to have a broad curriculum if you want to have more arts if you want to have more of anything this idea and this way of working and this collaboration and this buy-in is exactly the same conversation that you'd be having just in those different areas so it's not like you can like you said this silo idea of this is how we're going to work when we're implementing our technology this is how we want to work across our schools yeah and i, and I don't want to um, upset any any educators but the truth is it's not unique to education either if we were implementing new technology in a hospital or in a factory to be more efficient in manufacturing you'd have the same considerations it might be different topics but fundamentally success comes from making sure you've got those broadest set of opinions and ideas on the table from the beginning and everyone's pushing in the same direction so sometimes you have to kind of just simplify it down to the obvious and 
you know, schools are very, very good when it comes to that collaborative and sharing of information, far more than the, the private sector, where when you do something well, you tend to kind of keep it in your pocket as your own competitive advantage. You know, in education, we tend to immediately share to our peers and colleagues around the country, look, we're doing this and it's working really well. And that's a huge plus to have. Yeah, absolutely. And something else I just wanted to, to cover was... I think there was a little bit of fear factor in terms of technology before the pandemic in terms of everything needed to be closed circuit and, you know, making sure that, I mean, of course, data is important and, and, and safeguarding is incredibly important, but they're kind of, you know, should we record this in this way or should we use technology in that way? And of course, the pandemic meant that we had to do everything with technology. So therefore, it kind of opened that door. Um, do you think that's had a positive implication going forward now in terms of some of those things that we were doing, we're going to keep doing? And the fact that maybe it might be on a cloud rather than just in school under a, a sort of a virtual safe um, and, and key kind of idea? Is that perception changed and people are much more open to it now? Oh, I think the conversation to cloud or not to cloud, that is the question. Um, <clears throat> we've definitely learned a lot from the process. And I think we've learned good and bad. So the first thing is, you know, the number one advocates for why the cloud is the way to go, beyond no illusions, are, are the big cloud hosting providers because that's how they make more money. Now, the reality, of course, is the cloud does open up. And, and during COVID, we've absolutely seen that accessibility of tools and data is key to if, if you've got a dispersed workforce, children at home, staff at home or in school and so on. It doesn't always translate. You don't always need to have everything in the cloud for the cloud's sake. What, I think what we've seen is, and, and it continues rightly, is there continues to need to be visibility and dialogue about what is appropriate data to store about individuals, students and staff, how long you keep it for, who has access to it and so on. And, and schools now through lots of the work, ICO and others, should be very much in the mindset of before we adopt solutions and sign up to them, we do a data protection impact assessment. We're very clear on those kind of questions. I think for the right reasons, well-intentioned, again, March, April last year, a lot of staff were looking for quick solutions they could sign up to that would allow them to continue to deliver content and engagement with children. Some possibly on reflection were done in, <coughs> excuse me, in haste. Um, and others were proven to be very successful. So I think in one sense, we've removed the fear factor of, oh, that's a scary place, the cloud, let's not just go there. But at the same time, we've also increased the visibility of, but we also need to be mindful of what data it is that we're actually sharing and when we're actually using those kind of solutions. And I guess all these things, are, like I said, it's kind of having the tools, knowing what it is that you're wanting to do and then using them in the most appropriate and uh, and, and the best way. And, and I guess that's that's part of the same conversation, conversation that we had. That word appropriate is the most important one of all. You know, you can have fantastic teaching and learning without any technology in the room. It doesn't suddenly magically improve everything. Yeah, absolutely. And and we also know that it, it's a real rabbit hole, isn't it? Because there's, you know, this bit of tech in that bit of tech I mean it's a podcast you know the, the amount of forums that I'm in in the, you know the conversations about microphones and cameras and lighting and all of that <laughs> and it's really interesting when you're really into it but you can spend your entire life just talking about that and the forget about the fact you're actually having a conversation with somebody and that's kind of the most important factor <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so I, I know you've um used all this experience and, and you've got a book coming out now, the, the reason I'm interested in this particularly is the fact that technology doesn't look the same today as it did even 
a couple of years ago, let alone 10, 20, 30 years ago. So talk us a little bit sort of through that journey and sort of the, the things that everything has in common as opposed to the differences over the years. Yeah, it's, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I, I, I have, after 30 years of um, being in the space, decided to, to pen it all down into, as I've referred to it, my secret EdTech diary. I think I was just trying to allude to Adrian Mole, but that might preclude me from some of the younger listeners in terms of that reference. Um, the thing that really is apparent to me is that, as we've already touched on, sometimes the word EdTech can strike fear into many. And actually, if you distill it down and what the lessons are over the last 20, 30 years, lots of it is not that complicated because it's all about processes and what you're trying to achieve. And the nuances of each different app and tech are really kind of a separate point. So we can go right the way back to the 1930s and the 1940s, where we were at a point where, you know, Technology was being used in a very basic sense for um, delivering personalized learning. You know, it was the, the advent of, in a digital sense, a multiple choice question. Just happened to be a physical machine with four buttons. And depending on what you answered, it would then ask you another question or loop back to the beginning. The same kind of things that we see now in terms of tools that are significantly more capable and, and developed in how they deliver personalized learning. We've also seen the idea that we've talked about the kind of concept of something front of class that children engage with. And we can have our debates about projectors, whiteboards. Was it the whiteboard that was a good thing or a bad thing? Did we buy them because every other school had them? Did we have the right CPD to get the most out of them? And actually, when we look at it, the common themes don't really change. Often, the, the number one thing is about um, new technology coming along that's either unproven or is a commercial product that's being polished to make it look education. And they tend to be the things that fail. If we look at solutions that are co-produced, I would argue there's rarely revolution. Most of the time it's evolution. It's learning lessons and it's developing it. So what I wanted to do from a, a book perspective was to kind of say, look, we've been on this journey for a long time. Sometimes we learn lessons Sometimes we have Groundhog Day, you know, and that might be a Groundhog Day more about funding and delivery of new schools and other aspects, or it might be about the technology per se that sits within it. But then we can also say, well, over those 30 years, we've realized that some things are common and the way that we might deliver them in terms of our need to provide assessment for young people, to engage with them, to keep them safe with the tools they use, have become more sophisticated as the platforms have become more sophisticated. But the themes are actually quite common. And then we look and think in many ways, we've just hit a fast forward button and we've had this accelerated 18 months. Well, we've probably learned as much there as we did in the last 10 years about because we've been forced to try more things. Therefore, we've failed at more things and we've succeeded at more things. Well, my view is always, you know, failure is but a stepping stone to success. I think one of the things that schools were most successful at is empowering staff to take risks where appropriate. Try things with technology, not just technology, but in the context of this conversation. Try things, be, be confident in the idea that if you don't look at things, you're never going to develop. And actually, ironically, change that mindset, which is if you've got a particular issue and you go out for a solution to fit the way that you do something in the classroom, you might find a solution and you'll get a tick in the box. But how about going out and seeing what solutions are out there that might require you to change the way you do something in the classroom, but the net effect of the two could have much more significant impact. You know, and we've talked for 15 years about the SAMA model, substitution, augmentation, modification, redefinition. In other words, you know, taking what we do in a physical sense and flipping it using technology and how it might enhance and add value. And it's really about unpicking that 
to say, well, what does that actually mean? When is it appropriate? When isn't it? And if we move forward, what are the things we should be considering? You know, I often think it is about, you know, I'm never going to write a book that says this is what you should do. Because last time I checked, every child is different. Every school has a different context. There's a different set of opportunities. And every teacher will have a different set of, of, of their own competencies and areas of focus. So much like the prescriptive model for remote learning, which doesn't really translate because depending on your learners and their needs, they're going to need different types of bite-sized chunks of engagement and different ways of delivering teacher learning. The same applies with where are you at on a journey with your school or your trust here are the things you should be considering. Here are the things that would help you create a digital strategy. These are the lessons learned from others. Um, and as I like to shape it in a kind of a conclusion on the book, I've done a Voices Aligned, which is really bringing together um, voices from across the education space, both in the UK and internationally, um, and, and their experiences and thoughts about the way that technology has impacted, whether it's on teaching and learning, whether it's on communication, whether it's on well-being, parental engagement, those different strands. And I think it's that sense of rather than give you the answers, here are all the things to think about and the things I can answer is what's happened in the past. So here's examples of where things have worked well and why. And here are things that haven't worked well. And here's the reasons why we think they didn't work well and what are the lessons we can learn from that. But most importantly, most of the things you're looking at now and moving forwards, they're not brand new. They're an evolution of something previous. And if you break it down to the simplicity of what it is, my overarching message is edtech's accessible to all. You don't need to be a techie. You don't need to be a, a nerd or a geek. Everyone can use it at different levels. And I wanted to really demystify it and make it something that everybody could engage with. I think all of those strands are incredibly important. And, um, the, the thing that strikes me a lot is the, um, I guess the word engagement is, is the thing that comes through. And that's engagement within your school community, you know, those conversations you're having through with all the staff, the, the engagement you're having as a community, whether that's um, from school to parents and parents back into school and, and actually the community at large, having other people as part of your education learning. Um and just that kind of collaboration that we're, you know, we're all doing this together in whichever form that happens to be. And I think hopefully what we've managed to to cover today, and I think which you've articulated um, so succinctly, which is so great for us to understand, is just that, like you said, we're not reinventing the wheel necessarily. We're, we're evil, um, the evolution is, is the most important thing. And I think actually having as we know as educators, having that plan in place and creating the environment that you want to move forward and having um, EdTech as part of just that version of, of your, your vision, it's, I think, something that sort of relaxes everybody and gives them a sense of, yes, we can do this because this is what we do in many other aspects of our educational journey. So, um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Do tell us exactly where people can find out more and, and where they can get hold of the book. Um, thank you. Yes, um, it's available for for pre-order. It's out on July the fifth, right after Independence Day. Um, it's so it's available for pre-order on Amazon, or also with John Cat Educational Publishing. Um, it's called the same, my, my Secret EdTech Diary, and um, I hope you find it interesting. Fantastic, Al. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and experience, and uh, and I'm sure there are many people out there who suddenly got their cogs uh, whirring and <laughs> and uh, and thinking about how they can put that into their strategy. So thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com.
Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.